Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. All right, so good to be with you today. Uh, one, of the, uh, one of the things I feel inspired by oftentimes in life is uh, being able to ask children a question, and that's this. What do you want to be when you grow up? So I remember when we were in Oregon, uh, my kids went to a school, and they had all the kids at the graduation from kindergarten answer that question on a mic, and it was adorable. You'd have all sorts of answers. I want to be a policeman. That's always one of them. I want to be a princess. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a president. I want to be a fashion designer. I want to play in the NFL. Some people would say, I want to cure cancer. Others would say, I want to be a teacher. Or I want to be a superhero was a common one. The one thing I never heard was when I'm 30, I want to be playing video games living in my parents' basement. Never heard that one. On uh, the other hand, by the time someone is approaching 30, their answers are often a little less grandiose and uh, much less clear when you ask that same question. And you ever think about why the change? I think it's simply because of this. The reality of hurtful, disappointing experiences so often begin to put a lid on how we perceive our potential in life. As life happens, difficult, hurtful, painful experiences become part of our story. And the longer we live, the more scars we have from the pain and disappointment in life. And those scars all too often remind us, maybe even scream at us, that we shouldn't hope so much. So when we're all honest with ourselves, I think that each and every one of us has a level of hurt, great or small, no matter what it is, no matter how healthy our upbringing was, we have a level of hurt in our lives that still affects us today. Too often, our past story stands between our present and the person we want to be and where we want to be in life, even if it's just a little thing that gets in the way of that. Today we're going to start looking primarily for the rest of the series at the Old Testament character of Joseph. And uh, I think who better to teach us about what it means to get stuck or be up against immovable obstacles in our life and still discover God's breakthrough and helping us to grow and become what God wants us to be. Uh, Joseph was the great-grandson of Abraham, the 11th of 12 sons of Jacob. Jacob was also called Israel, you may remember from the Bible. The Bible shows us in very no-nonsense terms that Joseph grew up in a really dysfunctional family, and he bore the hurt the wounds, the scars of that in his life. His father, Jacob, had children by four different women. So uh, Joseph, you can conclude then, was the first Sister Wives reality TV show star. A few verses into Joseph's life, we see God give Joseph a dream that one day his life would count for something great. But we also see Joseph repeatedly facing hurt and betrayal and obstacles. And if you were to see any single one of these obstacles in the life of a friend of yours and you didn't know the end of the story, you would you would think that Joseph or their life was absolutely doomed to impossible odds. And as we look at this, uh, these circumstances over the next couple of weeks, so there's going to be a recurring major truth that we're going to be looking at, that Joseph experiences breakthrough in his life because he trusts God in both the good and the bad. And God wants each and every one of us to experience the same type of breakthrough in our lives. Now, 
I am not one who likes to dredge up the past and spend a lot of time in the past uh, in life. Uh, But I also recognize in my life and in everyone else's life that there are past experiences that have indeed shaped how we view life and how we respond to different situations. And some of those have been negative. And the way they've shaped our response to life is not helpful for us. In some instances, those past uh, experiences form very real barriers to our happiness and to our fulfillment and our relationship satisfaction that we want today in life. And yet, you can overcome your pain, your hurt, your past. Your past does not need to be a barrier to your future. So we're going to approach this a little bit differently in this message today. We're just going to jump into chapter 37 in Joseph's life and and look at that kind of working our way through the passage. And then at the end, we're going to highlight some key lessons out of this. So the chapter starts now with Joseph, 17 years old, tending the flocks with his brothers. And he brings back a bad report to his father. And then it immediately kind of just matter-of-factly says, Jacob, his dad, loved Joseph the most. He was clearly the favorite, provoking jealousy and hatred from his siblings. And then we see God give Joseph a dream that shows all of his brothers bowing down to him and Joseph one day being some sort of great ruler. And Joseph, in his youthful ignorance, tells his brothers the dream. It's exactly what you want to hear from your second youngest spoiled brat sibling, right? In another dream, he sees his, his brother, his dad, his stepmoms all bowing down to him. And he, of course, broadcasts his dream regarding how special he is to his whole family. Joseph is just a little bit thick in the head, lacking a little emotional intelligence, don't you think? Of course, this inflamed the hatred all the more. So we pick it up in verse 12, and it says, Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come on, I'm going to send you to them. And he says, Yeah, yeah, I'll go to them. Certainly I'll go. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. So let's think about this for a minute. Joseph is not tending the flocks with his brother, right? He's the spoiled brat at home. We see that. That's obvious. And now his dad is sending him out to check on his brothers and report back to him. What a setup for disaster, right? What's happening here? What's happening here is Jacob is parenting the same way his mom parented him. Family dysfunction tends to pass from one generation to the next. Remember, Rachel, Jacob's mom, favored Jacob over his older brother Esau. In fact, he even conspired to influence Jacob to deceive his father to get the blessing that rightfully belonged to his older brother Esau. And now history is repeating itself. In Joseph's story, we see a lot of hurt, a lot of negative, hurtful things happen that could destroy his self-worth and destroy and distort his identity. And hurt And our lives can go that deep for any one of us. For some of you, your hurt may be significant. Maybe your dad is extremely neglectful because of alcohol, and yet now you as an adult find yourself so stressed and so busy and life is just going so fast that you struggle to remember an evening when you've not had to have at least several drinks in order to help you cope. Maybe you were abused by a friend or a relative, and even though you know you did nothing wrong, you're still overloaded with shame for that. Or maybe your experience is less severe, much more subtle than that. Maybe growing up when you made a a choice that was less than pleasing to your mom, your mom froze you out, just giving you the cold shoulder for hours or a day or a week before things returned to normal. 
And now when your child does something disappointing to you, you tend to freeze them out, ignoring them for a day or, or so until you get past the disappointment or you think that they have felt enough rejection and pain so that they won't do it again. Maybe your family was just full of favoritism like Joseph. And now when you get together at family gatherings and everything seems peaceful on the outside, it's kind of a veneer, but everyone is just there avoiding the disappointment that they've had in their, in their relationships with other people in that room. You see, Joseph's story, if any of those or something similar apply to you, can be one of the most inspiring, hopeful stories in the Bible. Because you get to see that God can break the cycle of dysfunction in your life and your family from being passed on. The negative cycle that your heritage and history passed on to you doesn't have to pass on to the next generation. If you don't relate to hurt in that way, it can still be a tremendously inspiring story for you, Joseph's life, because you can look at it and you can more confidently know that God is going to work on your behalf when you face hurt, injustice, racism, disappointment. From Joseph's perspective, there was so much dysfunction and pain. He was the favorite, and that set him up for pain. In Joseph's mind, he didn't have great older brothers, but his brothers didn't think Joseph was all that good either. Joseph's mom is, was Jacob's favorite wife. She died years before this while giving birth to Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin. The other stepmoms all knew they were not loved like that at all. In fact, sometimes even despised. So they were constantly jockeying for favor and position, just wanting to be loved. Joseph was motherless being parented by a dysfunctional father who really was not healthy at all, with stepmoms and brothers jealous of him. So let's jump back into the story. In response to his dad's request, Joseph takes the long walk to Shechem in the Hebron Valley and discovers his brothers have moved on to Dothan, so he keeps on walking and goes there. In total, this is about four to five hard days of walking, 20-plus miles a day through hard territory. Verse 17, so Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan, but they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. So why did they see him in the distance? Do you remember? From the story, you may remember that Joseph, as the favorite, was wearing this extremely expensive, one-of-a-kind, multicolored coat that his dad had spoiled with him, making him look a little bit like Elton John. The brothers could pick him in a crowd from a thousand yards. It was that easy to see him. And the brothers... Immediate response is extreme hatred. The story goes on. They say, here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him, and then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Such hatred. Now, a cistern is a large hole dug in the ground. Most of the time it was covered with plaster so that when it rains, it fills up with water and stores water so that you have water when it's dry. The text goes on and says, When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him in the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. And Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. You may remember Reuben is the oldest son, and as such, especially in that culture, carries the greatest responsibility for protecting the family. It's very possible as we go through the story. Some of you will see yourself in Joseph, and others of you will see yourself in the brothers or in Reuben's life. 
If you're in Reuben's life, you, you feel like you're in this place in your family where you have responsibility or in your work or somewhere where you have the responsibility to intervene, to say something, to protect someone before a decision is made that makes it more hurtful and more drastic. So when Joseph came to his brothers, the text goes on and says, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, and their camels were loaded with spices and balm and myrrh, and they were on their way, taking them down to Egypt. So let's understand what's going on here. This stripping of his clothes was, was not a nice disrobing. This was more like a beating. So his brothers throw him already beaten into this dry cistern. There's no soft water landing. And then notice how hard their hearts are. While Joseph is there crying out in pain, pleading with them for help, they are just casually sitting there taking another bite while they eat. And while eating, they see in the distance some of their hated relatives of theirs who are now traitors. And so they decide to sell Joseph for the equivalent of about two years worth of wages into slavery. And as a result, they now have to create a cover-up story. Verse 31, then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in blood, and they took the ornate robe back to their father, and they said, we found this. Examine this and see whether it is your son's robe. Of course it is. It's a one of a kind. Nobody else in the thousand miles has that coat around him. He recognized it. He said, it is my son's robe. Ferocious animals must have devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So this very coat that was a symbol of their hatred of the spoiled favorite Joseph is now used to deceive their father, whom they resent because of his unfair, unloving treatment of them. Jacob, who deceived his own father to get the blessing of his older brother was entitled to, is now deceived by his own sons. This dysfunction is repeating itself in another generation. So it goes on in verse 34. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. This is just tremendously sad, this story. Some Maybe many of you know what it's like to be rejected, abused, taken advantage of, neglected, unloved, ostracized, put down by people who you should have been able to trust. Whether you identify more with Joseph or you identify more with the brothers, you have been the victim of hurt that has left scars in your life that you still see showing up in your thoughts, in the way you relate to people, in your fears, and your sense of inadequacy that you sometimes may feel yet today in certain circumstances. And as you carry that hurt, you find it beginning to define your identity and too often holding you back, keeping you stuck, not letting you move forward and grow to become who you want to be. Maybe your older siblings teased you and put you down repeatedly growing up. So even today, when you get in a similar situation, you struggle and it holds you back from being what you want to be. You see those scars still with you and you avoid situations, unable to freely live and freely be yourself. See, God doesn't want hurt in our lives to hold us back. 
So let's look briefly at three things that I think God shows us as far as finding breakthrough from hurt to healing and growth. And the first is this, recognize and grieve the reality. Recognize. Healing breakthrough begins when we recognize that each and every one of us has wounds that we need to overcome. No one is immune. The pain of sin has touched every single one of us. Whether in great ways or in small ways, the messages of that hurt, the existence of that pain in our past, stands between our present and who we want to be in life. We don't overcome wounds of our past by not paying attention to them and by burying them. We recognize them. But it's not just recognizing. It's also learning to mourn the pain. Jesus in his most famous sermon says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. When I was younger, I used to think God wanted me to mourn and feel bad for every single sin in the world and to walk around depressed and sad most of the time. That's not what this verse is saying. The verse is an invitation to fully face and deal with those things that hurt us. To mourn means to grieve or lament something, to process it in a way that you allow yourself to feel deeply as you deal with the loss or the emotional wound. And this is not a self-pity party that you get stuck in feeling sorry for yourself. Grieving is acknowledging the reality and allowing God to work in your heart so that you begin to arrive at increasing levels of comfort. See, the Jews in the Old Testament, they understood this. They understood what it meant to fully comprehend and to process pain and loss. They would walk around dressed in sackcloth and throw ashes on their heads. And when Jacob died, they mourned for seven days. When Moses died, the nation mourned for 30 days. And it wasn't just death they grieved. They grieved when others did them wrong. They mourned when others did them wrong. They, were, they repented and mourned for things that they did wrong to other people. When you actually look at the Psalms, 25% of the Psalms are lamentations. They are mourning, an expression of grief and sorrow, many of them written by David. And David is called a a man after God's own heart partially because he knew how to process and face sorrow and disappointment and the hurt he felt from the guilt of his own sin from the pain of the sin of others that he experienced, over hardship, over betrayal, over death. He mourned it all. And Jesus mourned, and he faced his pain. We see the text in the New Testament talking about Jesus groaning as he faces persecution and pain. He wept at the death and the pain of other people. It can be awkward, can't it be, sometimes to be around, to, to be a person and start weeping around other people? We, we tend to not like that. But Jesus didn't feel that way. He fully knew how to enter into someone else's pain. And that's how he interacted with the people in a way that they knew he loved them so much. See, in America, we're taught to suck it up and keep going too much without dealing with things. Even after a loved one passes away, we're taught to mourn food for a few days and then just get back to work. Jesus said, it is blessed to mourn. It is biblical It is healthy. Research on grieving actually reaffirms this, saying the reason we hold on to regrettable and painful incidences and the reason they become festering wounds in our memory and our relationships is because we haven't processed them well. They continue, when we haven't processed them, they continue to fester like abscesses just under the skin. 
However, if we process them, if we share them with God and with others, then we begin to live in comfort and continue to live more freely and fully. See, mourning is necessary for spiritual and emotional health and maturity. In fact, this is, I didn't say this in the first service. In the past when I did training with pastors, but even when I talk with nurses, with counselors, with people in the people professions where they, where they carry the weight of other people, this, for your longevity and your own health, is the most important skill you can learn is being able to mourn things well. Otherwise, if you are in a helping profession, you will carry the burden of the world and it will eventually crush you. Mourning is so important. See, if we stuff the hurt, the loss, the disappointment away, it will continue to show up in our present relationships, maybe through bitterness, maybe through callousness, maybe through irritability, maybe through withdrawal or just avoiding relationships or things that we know to be healthy. You have to fully face and evaluate the situation when someone hurts you. You have to fully face how it made you feel in order for you to receive and release uh, and, and give forgiveness uh, of a person and move forward in your spiritual journey. I mean, moving forward without fully facing your pain and your sin that you've inflicted on others will enable the ghosts to continue to haunt you. We all have had those invisible people that we've had to deal with in our lives, those, those people from way in our distant past that all of a sudden still pop up and they constitute a lot of our emotional baggage today that trigger these knee-jerk reactions even years later that can negatively impact your view of yourself and mess up relationships. Often there are people, there are songs, there are neighborhoods, there are smells, there are colors, there are images, authority figures, events, circumstances that can trigger depression, pain, or anxiety in us, and we may not even fully be conscious and understand why it's being triggered in that moment. And often, not always, but often those memories are connected to something we have not fully grieved and found the fullness of God's comfort in for our lives. Back in the ancient world, uh, when there was a death, the Jewish people would do something they called a shiva. They would come and they, the family and friends would sit with the family for seven days. And, and they wouldn't say what we often say during that time. They wouldn't go, oh, everything's going to be okay. Everything's, you know, blah, 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 the stuff that we say. They, they, just, they would just sit there and be with them. And when they had come out of that, they'd go into another 23 days for a total of 30 days into something called Shaloshim, which uh, they based this 30-day idea on the lunar cycle That because uh, of day one of the lunar cycle, you don't see anything. It's all dark. You don't see the brightness of the moon. It's completely dark. By day 30, you see the fullness of the moon radiating the beauty of the sun. The Jewish culture understood that you have to grieve deeply because if you don't, it spells trouble. So they intentionally set aside defined time to grieve. They didn't get lost in it. They set aside time to do it well. Why? Because we have hope. We don't get lost in grief because of hope. First Thessalonians says it this way, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Now, this word that Paul uses for grieve is, is this different tense, which means Paul is talking here about a type of grief that just is unending. It, it just never ends. It's ongoing. It's pervasive. You just, you just get stuck in it. You live in that place. 
And Paul is contrasting that kind of grief with the quality of grief you can actually experience in Jesus. We have a different quality to our grief because grief doesn't last forever. Our grief is not an ending. We have hope in Jesus, and he helps us through that to this place of comfort. We see this all throughout the scriptures. We see it in Joseph's life. I recently had a friend who was talking about grieving a change in their relationship or in their family, which meant that their relationships were going to be different. He knew that he was grieving what used to be and, and that he would never have that. He and his family would never have that ever again. And I was really glad that he was grieving that. All the changes that life bring and require of us uh, teach us that we need to learn to do this process well. This friend's example actually reminded me of a quote John Piper says once in a while. He says, occasionally weep deeply over the life you hoped would be. Grieve the losses, then wash your face, trust God, and embrace the life you have. So before we wash our faces and move on, I wanted to go into one thing that I think has just been really helpful for Wendy and I. I've seen it help in a lot of people's lives. It is, is it's actually the process of writing a lament. Uh, and there's just a bunch of bullet points. We have handouts if you want to take this home so you can work it through a little better that go into a little more detail. But just the bullet points. Always address a lament to God. Don't, don't write it to a person. Don't write it to an organization. Write it to God. Don't censor it. Uh, just get your thoughts and your feelings up and out. Uh, you know, don't worry about grammar. Don't worry about being appropriate or godly in your language. Just be 100% real. God is not offended by language that is honestly expresses your feelings no matter what words it uses. Do not edit it after it's written unless you just need to add more to it. But don't change what you wrote. Just Add to it if you need to add more. And spend time writing a little bit more about your feelings and your thoughts. Write about them both, but emphasize the feelings you're going through in that time. And I think these next three in the bullet point are really, really important. How did this loss change you? What has this loss cost you? And what questions has it raised about you, about life, about God that you need to process? And then conclude with some sort of these two statements. Uh, God, I need you to care for me in whatever it is. Or I will let you, God, take care of this situation or these feelings or the relationship or whatever it is. And then don't stop with just writing. Allow time for God to respond to you. You can listen. You can write down what he ministers to you. If, If there's anything you think might be for him, write it down. If you're struggling to figure out what he might be saying to him, maybe take your lament and read it to someone, a a trusted friend, and and ask them to pray with you and have them help you see where God might be in this situation to care for you. So second, we don't just recognize and grieve. We allow God to come into our feelings, our thoughts, and our beliefs that we carry because of our hurts. And we allow God to remember those experiences. We remember, we put our memories back together this time through God's grid. So maybe that looks like we recite God's truth uh, uh, from Scripture of his love and his power about us, about our situation, about life, about others, about the future, and what Scripture has to tell us about that. We see this evidence in in, in Joseph's story of him allowing God to put the plan and, and to put the story back together in a different way. Joseph refuses to forget the pain, and yet he has in mind his suffering in the context now of God's plan and purpose 
in that we see it in Genesis 50 late in his life when he's talking to his brothers and he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of lives. You let God bring his truth and his plan to those experiences. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That word comfort, it can be easily translated consoled, but it has this connotation as well of encouraged and instructed in the meaning of it as well. And what, what that means is this, only when you mourn, Do you find encouragement and instruction to what is really true, not what the injustice and the pain and the hurt tell you is true? The word comfort is also the word used to describe the Holy Spirit. Comfort from God is this very personal thing. God coming alongside you to encourage you and instruct you in who you really are, not who the pain says you are. Jesus, the one who comes alongside you, In comfort, man, that's especially meaningful. Because think about it. Jesus grew up facing the pain of being unloved and rejected. He lived through the tragic early death of loved ones, like his stepdad, Joseph, who died when he was young. Jesus grew up in a town where everyone knew Jesus as the bastard child. They thought of his mother as the one, and I'm sure they certainly talked about her, as the one who was so mentally unstable as to believe her child was conceived in her by God. His brothers didn't believe in him until after he was resurrected from the dead. Just think about that sibling mix in general. Can you imagine the struggle of favoritism and jealousy with a brother conceived by God to save all people? And what kind of jealousy that created? Even as an adult, his brothers told others that Jesus was crazy. Jesus grew up as the town joke in a town that was known as the trashy town of Israel. So when you go through hurt and shame and the crud of life, Jesus knows. And he cries with you. He is angry along with you. He is with you. God's presence, the power of of presence cannot be underestimated. Uh, Maybe illustrate that. Years ago, I was going through a really difficult time. It was a particularly exhausting and difficult season in life, and I, I knew my friend Ted cared about me deeply, but there was one night exhausted and just troubled that I broke down by myself in a dark room. I just lost it. And in walks Ted, and knowing someone you trust is with you, is weeping with you, is compassionately touching you and praying with you when you're grieving and hurting, more than any words, more than anything I could tell myself about how much Ted cared for me, his presence in that moment was worth a million words. See, if all you do in remembering, in re-putting the story back together is using scripture for positive confession. And I am encouraging you to do that. It's something that we need to do. It's true. It's right. It's an essential thing that we do is to use scripture in our life that way. But if that's all you do, then you miss the biggest part, the presence of the Holy Spirit with you, where you can invite God into those painful places with you. He's been there. He's felt what you feel. God weeps with you. He's angry along with you. He feels what you feel with you. And there is nothing more powerful than knowing God's loving presence in that way. 
The story today doesn't end with total despair. Joseph arrives in Egypt after a few weeks of walking, which probably looked a lot like toddlers following a rope between classes, except in this case, Joseph was bound to the rope and he was dragged behind camels, a very miserable, horrible, demeaning experience. Joseph arrives at the auction block in the capital of Egypt and the text says, meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So while this chapter doesn't resolve things for Joseph, it does end with this brilliant ray of hope. Joseph has gone from being the favorite son of a wealthy, powerful tribal family in the area we call Israel today to being thrown into pits, sold into slavery, now being sold as a servant to one of the most powerful trusted men in Egypt. The captain of the guard, Potiphar, is like the head of the secret service protecting the pharaoh. He's like the head of the government police forces and homeland security. Joseph is serving a guy who is a cabinet-level position in the superpower nation of his day. So even in this unjust servitude, there is this hope for the dream God gave him to come to pass after all. Because Joseph knew that in that day, slaves who excelled were often appointed as heirs to take over their master's household. So the third lesson in overcoming hurt is hold on to hope. Hold on to hope. No matter what happens, no matter whether you see progress or setback, no matter how long it's taking to move beyond where you're you're hurt to your healing and freedom, hold on to hope. We don't grieve as people without hope. Hope. There are going to be glimpses all along the way in our lives of God at work setting up what he promises over our lives. Even if they are only partial glimpses that don't last, like this hope that Joseph has in this moment is not going to last. And yet God is still writing Joseph's story. And God is not done writing your story either. Satan and others can whisper in your ears, give up, throw in the towel. You are hopeless. You are never going to get past this hurt, these experiences of abuse, and it's never going to not affect you in a negative way. But but there's this preacher's cliche that, that is nonetheless powerfully true, and it's this. Never place a period in your story where God has placed a comma. See, in my years of church ministry and consulting and counseling, I've seen individuals whose families and even whole churches break through to change that I believed and others believed could never happen. I've seen a woman so abused that all she thought she was good for was to be sexually abused and used, break free from that, and are now living in a happy, healthy marriage, raising children who are not having the dysfunction that she grew up in passed on to them. I've seen older people who were so negative and so cranky because of how desperately bruised and broken and hopeless the pain of life had made them turn into such positive and caring, praying, supportive people so free that you would not recognize them today if you knew them 10 years ago. I've seen churches so without hope that everyone just said, let them go, let them die, just close them, turn into thriving places where people are receiving hope and salvation and healing for many. I've seen God take a really bad dude, a high-ranking money-laundering mobster, seriously, talk to Todd Rose, he's out in Russia, and turn him into a praying, passionate pastor raising a great family and a great church. See, the point is we're all going to experience pain and hurt. But you don't need to take on the identity of a victim and be stuck in the mud of that negative identity. 
We may not see the beauty of our lives in the midst of the hurt, but the story God is writing in our lives is, is, is a lot like a tapestry. Have you, have you ever looked at the back side of a tapestry? It, it's pretty jumbled. It's, it's just knots, it's loose ends, it's strings and tangled and hanging there. And when we look at our lives, that's often how we see our lives. Loose ends, tangled threads, knots, things not looking. But when you flip that over, you see this amazingly beautiful picture. God is weaving a beautiful picture in your life, even taking the tangled knots of your life and redeeming them and reshaping them and bringing beauty and something good, something that redeems the bad into good in your life and for others' lives. Paul talks about this heartache and abuse and tragedy and persecution and writes about it in this way. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves received from God. Not only is God weaving beauty in your life, he is working through you, even through the hurt in your life, to weave something rich and meaningful and beautiful in the people around you so that you can bring comfort to others out of the comfort you have received. So what are some options that we can uh, respond to this message for? I want you this week to look at a place in your life and identify a place in your life where you easily get triggered. Uh, you easily get angered. you frustrated, saddened. And I want you to invite God to show you, is there anything in the past that is complicating that, that is causing that in the present? And if so, I want you to take one of those lament forms out there and I want you to practice the lament and remember Explore it, look at it, talk honestly and openly to God and grieve because blessed are those who mourn. Then let him help you remember, put your memories back together in a different way. Let him shape your thoughts instead of the pain and the hurt shaping your thoughts. Let him do it. You may even decide to share some of that with a friend and pray together with a friend this week as a way to let it go. For now, would you just stand with me as we pray? Lord, even as I'm talking about this, I just, I just have these memories coming to mind of, of places where I still get triggered. Where these voices from years ago still interrupt things that I wish I could parent better or I wish I could be a different way in this interaction or I wish I could face this situation differently. And Lord, I suspect we all have those. So Father, I pray that in your goodness and your kindness that you would come to each one of us and you would bring to mind the ones that you want to touch now and heal today and this week and in the coming month. And that you'd help us know how to grieve them and know how to break through and move beyond them. And Father, that your spirit would become so real in those places where when we get triggered, we, we go to escape because we don't want to deal with it because we don't want to talk to you about it, Lord. I pray instead that you'd help us see you coming to us and, and being angry with us at what happened to us, sharing in the, our anger with us. And that you would cry with us. And Lord, we would know your healing presence. Lord, even as we continue to worship now, I pray that your spirit would come to each and every one of us, that we would know your presence now, your love, your compassion, 
and how much we can trust you, that we can open our arms wide and trust you. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.